Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also has been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Ru, Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Canaan, the Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, my name is Scott Dixon. Uh, I serve on staff at Providence Church over in Frisco. Uh, I've been on staff there for over 10 years. And so I remember when this church uh, was planted uh, very, very well. There's a lot of obviously deep connections uh, between Providence and Christ Redeemer. Uh, and because of that, it's just it's an extreme privilege, uh, I feel, to get to be here with you this morning. Well, uh, before we get into today's text, and I'll explain what we can even learn from a list of names here in a moment, I want to kind of catch us up to speed with where Luke has been in his gospel so far. So Luke's first two chapters contain some very famous passages. Uh, these first two chapters are often collectively referred to as the infancy narratives, okay, so this these two chapters describe the conception and birth of uh, not just Jesus, but also John the Baptist, his cousin. And so they're the infancy narratives, and, and many of the things we know and celebrate about Christmas in December actually come from Luke's gospel itself. Uh, of John the Baptist, Luke 1 says that he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, of Jesus, it's said that he's going to be called the Son of the Most High, that Jesus will sit on the throne of King David, his descendants, and never get off that throne. It said that God is being faithful 
Uh, by sending Jesus, God is being faithful to his promises to Abraham made many centuries prior. And these infancy narratives conclude in, at the very end of chapter 2 with Jesus, actually not as an infant anymore, but as a 12-year-old boy getting lost in the temple, uh, where in a scene that Luke is meant to uh, draw out just his connection to the Father, to his Father, God. Uh, starting with chapter 3 in Luke, though, we get to a new section, which is going to carry us through chapter 4, verse 13, where the focus is on preparation, preparation for Jesus. So incidentally, uh, Jesus' ministry in Luke doesn't really begin until Luke 4, 14. So everything up until then is really setting the stage for the ministry of Jesus. And so at the passage we're looking at this morning, Luke is still kind of building up to that point. Okay, this is still a moment of preparation. And so in Luke 3, verses 1 through 20, the focus is once again on John the Baptist and his ministry. And it shows us how John the Baptist prepares the people of Israel for, for Jesus' arrival, and he does that by baptizing them and calling them to repent of their sins. And, and that brings us to the section we're at today, beginning in verse 21. In our text today, the focus is, again, going to be on Jesus' preparation for his ministry, okay? Again, that doesn't start till verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. So here, Jesus is still being prepared. And the main point I want to make this morning in this text is that Jesus is qualified to be God's son. Jesus is qualified to be God's son. Or if I can say it differently, that Jesus is uniquely qualified to represent the nation of Israel and more broadly, all of humanity. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. But let's start with this scene of Jesus being baptized. So, I'm not going to pretend that this section of Scripture, um, particularly the genealogy, is anybody in here's favorite section of the Bible, okay? Uh, if some of you found your minds wandering as he's leading, reading this list of names, that's okay. That happens to me too, okay? Um, genealogies just are riveting, if we're honest, and there's a lot of them in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed that. But genealogies, while not always riveting, they're very, very important in the Bible. And the first thing, though, I want to say about this genealogy is that part of what makes it important is where Luke places it in his gospel, okay? Where Luke places it. To understand what he's doing, we need to look at what becomes right before it and also what comes right after it as well. And what comes before is this scene of Jesus being baptized, these two verses, so earlier in Luke 3, we see, that, again, that John has been preparing the way for Jesus. He's calling people to repent of their sins. Luke uh, 3, 3, it says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So baptism is for sinners. And so for the moment, I'm going to leave aside why did Jesus need to be baptized if he's sinless. We'll get back to that. But Jesus now finds himself coming to John the Baptist to experience baptism. Let's read those two verses again, Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's a very short account. I want to highlight a few observations from it, though, okay? First off is Jesus praying. Jesus praying. So in Luke's gospel, prayer is actually a very major emphasis. Uh, and he frequently records Jesus praying at pivotal moments in his life. So this is a very pivotal moment in Jesus' life, what's about to happen, him being baptized. 
And notice that while he's praying, there's a second thing I want to highlight. The heavens, Luke says, were opened. The heavens were opened. All right, so that phrase, the heavens are open, usually in the Bible when you read a phrase like that, you know something's about to go down, okay? Something big, some kind of word for the Lord, some kind of revelation. For example, the very first verse in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1.1, says that the heavens were opened. And if you've read Ezekiel 1, you know that after that happens, a lot of, he sees a lot of weird things, okay? And sure enough, some big things happen once the heavens are opened here. The heavens are open and something happens. A couple things happen. The first is this, the Spirit descends. The Spirit descends on Jesus. Another big theme in Luke's gospel is the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned frequently in the first couple of chapters, and again here at a pivotal moment. So why is this significant that the Spirit descends on Jesus? One commentator, William Taylor, writes this, which is helpful. He says that one of the marks of a divinely anointed Old Testament leader is that they are filled with the Spirit. Old Testament leaders were filled with God's Spirit. I think another important passage for us to keep in mind as we read this scene is Isaiah 11:2, a passage talking about Israel's Messiah, their future king. And Isaiah says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So Jesus is being anointed like many of Israel's leaders in the Old Testament. The most important part in this scene, though, of Jesus' baptism is the next piece, what happens next, this voice, this voice that speaks, this voice that explains what is happening from heaven. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. These words are from um, a few different places in the Old Testament. Most critically, though, they come from Psalm 2-7, which reads this, you are my son Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. These were words in Psalm 2 that were spoken over Israel's king by God, saying, you are my son. And so in this scene, in these two verses, we have, let's sum up, we have the heavens being opened. So something's about to happen. We have the spirit descending on Jesus. We have this voice from God saying, you are my son. What is Luke doing here? What's he drawing our attention to? What's he showing us? What he's showing us is this, that what's happening in these two verses is that Jesus is being commissioned. He's being commissioned to do something. To quote William Taylor again, he says that the significance of this incident in the life of Jesus and also for understanding his ministry cannot be overstated. Jesus is being publicly identified as the Son of God the Father and is being commissioned by Him. So He's being commissioned to do something. And it's at this point, y'all, that Luke now decides to bring in this genealogy. Because this genealogy is going to show us that Jesus is qualified to serve in this role. And this genealogy will also clarify what His role is going to involve. All right? Okay. So this genealogy, this list of 70-plus names that he did such an awesome job reading. Thank you again for doing that. Why is it here? Why, why is this here? What do we do with this? How, is this in any meaningful way applicable to us today? Well, it's God's Word, so yes. But let's look at how, okay? Let me pause real quick, though, and explain how genealogies work in the Bible, because I think this will be helpful. So, 
Genealogies, there's several of them in the Bible, they're hardly ever exciting, okay? Let's just be honest, all right? But they're important. Genealogies often will communicate very important theological points. And let me give you just one example, okay? So in Genesis 11, there's an example of a genealogy that takes you from one of Noah's sons, Shem, takes you from Shem to Abraham. And like this genealogy in Luke, it's important to note what comes right before that genealogy and what comes right after it. So what comes right before that genealogy in Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Okay, this infamous scene in which fallen humanity decides to make a name for themselves by building this grandiose tower. And then God judges them by confusing their languages and scattering them over the face of the earth. So that's what comes before that genealogy. What comes right after it? You get God calling Abraham and making promises to him, promising him land to make him into a great nation. And he promises to bless all the peoples on the earth through Abraham. Through this nation, in other words, all nations will be blessed. So I want you to notice something. Immediately after this story of God in his judgment, Tower of Babel, scattering people, effectively creating the nations, we get a genealogy which brings us to Abraham, a man God is going to use to bless those nations. If I can say it this way, that genealogy in Genesis 11, it connects a problem with its solution. God will reverse the judgments that we see in the story of Babel. It's not exciting reading. It doesn't make the genealogy any more interesting. I'll admit that. But do you see the beauty in it? Almost the poetry in that genealogy being there, what it's doing? In the same way, I think Luke is making a point with this genealogy. Two other things I'll just mention about this genealogy real quick that I think command our attention. First of all, Luke is a historian. Luke very carefully researched his gospel. He, he, I think part of why he wants to include this genealogy is just to show that this Jesus that we worship is a real guy with a traceable lineage. He's not some just mythological demigod, but he has a history. He's showing us that our faith is rooted in history. Another thing I think it's important to point out too, uh, just considering the length of this genealogy, is that uh, Providence this last year, we did a men's and women's Bible study through Romans. And um, when, we, when I began studying the book of Romans, one of the most interesting comments I read was uh, one scholar estimated that just given writing at the time, what that involved and how long Romans is, one scholar estimated that Romans was a project that took $2,000 to complete. Two grand to complete. That's not a small, uh, that's not just Paul getting bored and jotting some notes down and oh, that's, that's the letter to the Romans. No, it took intention and effort and cost. Okay, my point is just this, writing at this time was laborious. It was expensive. And so for Luke to go through all this trouble, it must be important to him. He's, Luke's not just bored. That's not where he, this list came from, all right? He's making a point. He's saying, hey, let's look at who God just commissioned. So I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not going to hit every single name in this genealogy this morning, okay? But I think Luke's point is to show us that Jesus is historically connected to three individuals in particular, okay? Three individuals in particular, and it's, it's his connection to these three that teaches about who he is and what he's come to do. And those three are Abraham, David, and Adam. Abraham, David, and Adam. 
So let's talk about Abraham first. Why does Luke want to make this connection between Jesus and Abraham? So I mentioned Abraham just a second ago. So in Genesis 1 to 2, God creates a good, harmonious world free of sin. In Genesis 3, we mess it all up, right? And then in Genesis 4 through 11, you just get this record of sin infecting all of humanity, spreading throughout the human race. And then in Genesis 12, you get God's call of Abraham, which is a pivotal moment in the biblical story because what's happening is that God is going to use Abraham to reverse the effects of the fall. It's through Abraham and his descendants that God is going to fix everything wrong with the world that we live in today. John Stott, who was, a, a, who was an amazing Bible commentator, said this about Genesis 12 and these promises to Abraham. He said, it can be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises to God. And someone else said that Genesis, the rest of the Bible really uh, fleshes out Genesis 12, 1 through 3, those promises and how God fulfills them. So God's going to fulfill his purposes in creation through Abraham and his descendants. And in the Old Testament, the whole reason that the nation of Israel, if you look, uh, the nation of Israel being Abraham's descendants, the whole reason they existed was to bless the nations. That was their purpose. And so by connecting Jesus to Abraham, I think what Luke is doing is he's highlighting Jesus' Jewish identity, first of all. He is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is. And thus, he is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises with Abraham. Jesus is the answer to every promise God ever made to Israel, including blessing the nations. That promise to bless all nations is going to happen through Jesus, this descendant of Abraham. Uh, Mary, for example, uh, in her song, the Magnificat, which she sings after Gabriel has announced to her, that she's going to conceive and give birth to the Savior. Mary sings this, by sending Jesus, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. So he's the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Many centuries later, after Abraham, we get more specifics about this promise, which brings us to David. So David was Israel's greatest king, and, and just like Abraham, there are some important pro- there's an important promise that God makes to David like he had made with Abraham. We're actually going to have this on the screen, I believe. So this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God makes this promise to David. Starting verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house. He's talking about the the temple here. He is the one who will build this temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the hope for the world is not just going to be a descendant of Abraham. The hope for the world is going to be a king descended from David, who is descended from Abraham. And God promises David that his dynasty will last forever. Now, we can read this passage 
this promise of David, David and immediately think, oh, he's talking about Jesus. But let me ask you this. Can this be talking about Jesus? What I mean is, look at this. When he does wrong, Jesus never sinned. So can this be talking about Jesus? Well, in the immediate context, he's talking about Solomon, David's immediate son, the successor to his throne. But the big point here I want to get across is that every king who comes to sit on David's throne from here on out inherits these promises we just read and thus represents the hope of God's people. And I want you to notice that God is promising these kings who sit on David's throne to have a father-son relationship with them. He promises to have a father-son relationship with David, with Solomon, and every king who comes after them. And that brings us back to Psalm 2, verse 7, where God's words to King David, and by extension every king after David, are this, you are my son, today I have become your father. Words spoken by God the Father when Jesus is baptized. My point is this, I think Luke's point is this, Luke is establishing Jesus' right to sit on David's throne. He represents Israel as the rightful king. He's the fulfillment of this promise God made to David. And that brings us to Adam. Adam, so important, y'all, to understanding Luke's genealogy is to look at how it ends with Adam. Now, maybe you're familiar. This is Adam of Adam and Eve fame, okay? Maybe you're familiar with this guy. Like, if, if I were to ask you, like, Let's do a word association with Adam. Like, who was Adam? What would you say to me? You'd probably say, oh, he's the first, he's the first human, right? That's his claim to fame. But what's the second thing you would say about Adam? What's his other uh, claim to fame that is not a mark of pride? He's the first sinner, right? The one who messed everything up for us, right? The guy that, if we're honest, we wish we could just kind of slap and say, what were you thinking? Right? That guy. His claim to fame. First human, first sinner. Why does Luke go all the way back to this guy? Matthew's also got a genealogy of Jesus, and he, he only goes back to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And here's why I think he does that. Luke's already shown us that Jesus is the hope for the nation of Israel because he's the son of Abraham, and he's the son of David. But, and don't miss this, by going all the way back to Adam, Luke is showing us that Jesus is not just the hope for the nation of Israel. He's the hope for humanity. He is the hope for all nations because all of us come from Adam. He is the hope of humanity. He's saying that Jesus' ministry will have significance not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people. Luke's the only gospel writer to have actually written a sequel to his gospel called the book of or the, the Acts of the Apostles. An Acts, he will show how the gospel spreads beyond the borders of Jerusalem to go to all nations, all the Gentiles. That's another big, big theme for Luke is the Gentile inclusion. And that's great news because at the end of the day, if you think about it, Israel's problems were just humanity's problems. Think about this. So Adam and Eve... When they sin, uh, or let me, let me back up, God put them in a land for them to live in, for them to walk with God in, this, this garden in the land of Eden. And when they sin, what happens? 
They have to leave that land. And centuries later, God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and He gives them commands, Ten Commandments, many, many others. And He tells them, hey, when you get into this land, I'm going to bring you into it. You need to follow these commands. So once again, God takes His people and puts them in a land. And yet, after centuries of disobedience, they have to leave the land. You see that symmetry between the nation of Israel, Adam and Eve? When they sin, they have to leave God's land. History is replaying itself. Israel's problems are just humanity's problems. We run from the Lord. The Garden of Eden just replays itself in Israel's story. And Israel's story is just our story. We can't stop disobeying God. And so Jesus isn't just Israel's hope, he's humanity's hope. That's Luke's point by going all the way back to Adam. That's what he's doing with this genealogy is to show that he is the hope for all nations. He's saying that Jesus identifies with and represents all of humanity. He's one of us. He's one of us. He is a human being. I mean, think about why was he even baptized if baptism is for sinners? To identify with us. That's what the gospels say. To identify with us, he underwent this act of baptism. And then notice this, what Luke says about Adam. What does he call Adam at the very, very end of Luke 3? Everybody's been the son of so-and-so, but Adam is the son of God. Adam is the son of God. What did God say to Jesus when he was baptized? You are my son. How is Adam described? Son of God. That's not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence that Luke does this. So this son of God, that phrase, you know, growing up, that's a phrase, you hear son of God, you immediately think Jesus. Uh, and that's true. But that's a phrase that, that um, can kind of be fluid in meaning. It can mean several different things. Uh, for example, as we've seen already, uh, son of God applied to David and the kings who came after him. The king was God's son. In Exodus 4, the nation of Israel, God says, is his son. And then, of course, Adam here, he, what, 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 what Luke is doing is he's linking Adam and Jesus for us in our minds. Incidentally, both these guys, you know, maybe in Luke's mind, both these guys did not have a biological father. <laughs> Adam was just created directly by God. The Holy Spirit enables Mary to be conceived. So let's go back to our word association with Adam. He said he's the first human. He's the first human being, the spring from which all humans come. Luke's showing us that Jesus is another Adam. He's the start of a new humanity, the first in a line of a new humanity who've been redeemed by the Lord. What was the other thing we said about Adam, though? He's not just the first human, he's the first sinner. The guy who messed up everything when he gave in to Satan's temptations, right? Look ahead in your Bible at Luke chapter 4. I don't know if your Bible has like a heading, but look what happens right after the genealogy. Jesus being tempted by Satan. Satan comes to him and says things like, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, do these things. What Luke is doing is he's showing us that Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. So something unique about Luke's genealogy is the direction that it moves in. So most genealogies in the Bible are going to work from the, the present and kind of work their way backwards in history, okay? Um, 
I'm sorry, that's wrong. Most of them will start um, uh, in the past and work their way forward. Luke starts with Jesus and works his way backwards. Most genealogies don't go backwards. And I think, I think that's significant. It's as if Luke wants Adam to be fresh in your mind when you go on to read Luke 4, this temptation narrative. Uh, one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says this, Adam and temptation. This combination is Luke's way of saying, hey, read this temptation story in Luke 4 in light of Genesis 3, where Adam fell. Here is the second Adam, the representative head of a new humanity. So Luke ends his genealogy showing us Jesus' connection to Adam, this new son of God, who is once again going to be tempted. Incidentally, there's also overtones here in, this, in Luke 4 of Israel, because this temptation, Jesus is tempted like Adam was, but this temptation happens in the wilderness, a place famous for Israel's failure after they came out of Egypt, but before they got into the promised land. This was a, this was a, uh, a low moment in their history, and they had many. They were tempted in the wilderness and failed. And so Jesus is also, there's also overtones of that in this story. So Jesus is succeeding where Adam failed, and he's succeeding where the nation of Israel failed. So kind of wrap this all up. So David, every other king after him, was God's son. The nation of Israel, as Abraham's descendants, are called God's son. Adam, uh, created directly by God, is referred to as God's son son. And yet all of these sons failed to live up to God's standards. Adam sinned. The nation of Israel rebelled against God, had to leave the lands. Uh, David's sons after him, who sat on his throne, that son of all those sons of God, they led the nation to worship other gods. These sons failed. And what Luke's doing is showing us here is a son that won't. Where these sons failed, this son succeeds. He won't follow in this pattern anymore. So we see in this passage, Jesus is being commissioned for service in his baptism. This genealogy gives us his credentials, the right to be this person who sits on David's throne, this new Adam. And then going on, if you're to read on Luke 4, you see that Jesus will demonstrate what none of those other sons did, total allegiance to God his Father. Total allegiance to God his Father. So what about us? Like, what, what do we do with any of this? Like, why is this applicable to us today? Uh, I think there's a lot. I'll, I'll highlight a few things, though. Uh, first, the most important takeaway from this passage in Luke, I think, is this, that Jesus is humanity's new representative. He's the new representative for us. So think about it this way, like, um, is there like a book that you like to reread or a show or a movie that you just find yourself constantly go back to where like maybe a character makes a very bad choice? And even though you've like watched this movie a thousand times on the thousand and first time you're watching it, you're like, that moment comes up and you're kind of just like hoping like, oh, don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You're kind of, you know, hoping that they'll make a different choice. And they're like, ah, they did it again. Like, you know better, but there's that part of you that wishes, like, ah, what if they made a better choice, right? That's how I am when I get to Genesis 3, like in my Bible reading plan. The serpent comes into the garden, tempts Adam and Eve. I just kind of find myself hoping, like, ah, maybe they'll, 
maybe they'll do the right thing this time. No, no, they sinned. It never happens. But what I like to imagine thinking about this topic is this. If you get to just Jesus being, the, the idea of Jesus being this new son, like a new Adam, and then going into the, t- the temptation story of Luke 4, I just imagine like all of humanity watching with bated breath. We get a do-over. We're getting a do-over as a species. Here's another son of God, another Adam. Oh, here comes Satan again. We've seen this play out so many times, always with the same result. And yet, amazingly, as we're watching this story we've seen a thousand times, it ends differently. Jesus succeeds. He does not give in to Satan. He wins where no one else can. The gospel, which means good news, is the announcement that Jesus has taken up his rightful throne. There's a king on David's throne again. And thus the gospel also makes demands of us to submit to him, to repent of our sins and follow him. And guys, when we do that, when we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, what happens is that we become part of a new humanity, a humanity where Adam is no longer the one representing us, but Jesus is this perfect human being. And with that comes the promise of being part of a new humanity, comes the promise of being raised after death to live in a new world free of sin, death, sickness, to live forever with Jesus. Jesus represents all of us, all of humanity. And and that means, obviously, that he represents the names that we've just read in this genealogy. And I think there's a couple other takeaways we we can get from that. I think this genealogy gives us a lot of comfort for those of us who are struggling with sin. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're like, man, I don't want to be here. Like just the week I've had, I just, I don't feel worthy. I feel like a phony singing these songs. I feel like a phony just for being here. But I love that Jesus identifies with those who have messed up. David, these names in this genealogy, David, Abraham, Noah, Um, Adam, the Bible's very honest about their shortcomings. Some of them are very big shortcomings. And one thing I love about Scripture, guys, is that it's very, very honest about how these heroes of our faith have failed. And yet Jesus is not afraid to represent them, to be in their family. Remember his baptism. He did not need to be baptized. But by doing so, he was identifying with sinners So I think this is a comfort for those of us who may just feel the guilt of sin. Jesus is a merciful Savior, and he is pleased, not embarrassed, to be identified with you. So take your sin to him. I think this genealogy also gives us comfort for those of us in this room who may just feel insignificant or unseen. What do I mean by that? So some of these names in like verses 28 through 31, like Melchi, Matatha, etc., they don't show up anywhere else in Scripture. This is the one time they get mentioned in the Bible. Like, we don't know anything about them. And Jesus represents them as well. He represents the forgotten. In this list, we obviously have the big names of the Bible, you know, Abraham, David, and then there's people in, in this genealogy that we know nothing about. And yet, all of them have the honor of being part of this genealogy. 
Guys, in the Christian life, some Christians are well-known. You know, you've got your, your John Piper, your Jen Wilkins, you know, big, big names. That's not most of us. Most of us are not well-known, but we're known well by a few. Your family, people in your church, coworkers. We're not famous, but we are all known as Christians in the only worry, way worth being known, by God, by name. He knows you because he's a father who cares for you. You may feel insignificant, but you're not insignificant to him. You're a big, big deal to him. He sent his son for you. He gave literally everything he could possibly offer to make you his own. You're a big deal to him. And you might need to hear that this morning. If you're struggling, with just like, man, could God use me? I just, I don't know if I'm important at all. You are. He knows your name, even if nobody else does. He's a father who cares for you. That leads me to this last point. But guys, to be a Christian means that God is your father, which means you and I are sons and daughters of the creator of this universe. And that means, guys, that when, when what God says of Jesus in his baptism, he now says of you, with you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. Not because you're perfect. No, we're, the, we're sinners. We're just like other names in this genealogy. Not because we're great, but because he's come to rescue us. Because we've identified with Jesus. One commentator says this, talking about just that phrase that Jesus is baptism, with you I am well pleased. And he says this, that the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus is the true Son of God, the one who succeeded where all other sons failed. And to be a Christian also means that you and I are adopted into that family as his sons and daughters. And now you and I share the same status of the only son who never disobeyed his father. So feel God's pleasure in that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we, what a gift to call you our father. God, so many in the biblical story who have called you Father did not live up to that privilege. Adam didn't. The nation of Israel didn't. Israel's kings from David's line did not. And God, here we are today as your sons and daughters who, if we're honest, we also have very broken track records. We make promises of, Lord, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do this and that. And we fail. God, we're not your children because of our worth. Because who could be your children then? But God, we thank you for Jesus, who Luke is showing us has stepped into the role of Israel, the role of Abraham, of Israel, of Adam, and has succeeded where all of them have failed. God, the gospel is now that our sins can be forgiven when we're united to him, that he can represent us before your throne instead of us 
And so for all of us in this room, Lord, I pray that might be old news, but it's the best news. And so remind us of the beauties of that truth this morning, that we stand secure in your presence because Jesus obeyed you. Jesus succeeded. May that be our confidence, not our, our performance this week, which is iffy at best. God, for those of us in, in here who may be feeling the, the guilt of sin, God, if they've never trusted in you, Jesus, as their Savior, may this be the morning that they can lay that burden now down and receive Jesus' record, his righteousness. God, for those of us, your sons and daughters, who may be carrying that burden around, remind us that it's not our burden we have to carry because this one Jesus carried for us is a burden you canceled on the cross for us. God, for those who may feel unseen by you, so did these people on this list. God, remind us of our dignity as your children. You don't forget us. No father, no good father could truly forget his children. And you don't, Lord. You made us and you redeemed us. God, there's such life here. And these words found in Scripture, all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And so, God, I pray that this text from Luke would profit us this week. Let us rest secure in your love. May we feel your pleasure the way you take pleasure in Jesus. Thank you for being a good God. We love you and give all of this to you. In Christ's name, amen.